This talk was given by Chris Yudo Abram at Zen Mountain Monastery. Yudo is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Why do we practice Zen? This morning, Shugen Roshi quoted Milarepa, in which he said that this path leads to a life of no regrets. And that sentiment, that life of no regrets, has always resonated for me. And it's easy for me to reflect on why I practice Zen. To live a life of no regrets, we'd have to live our lives fully, holding nothing back, giving it our all. But how do we do that? How do we live our lives fully? I've always loved the title of Maizumi Roshi's book, Appreciate Your Life. It's like all the esoteric teachings of Zen boil down to appreciate your life, live a life of no regrets. It seems so simple, but in reality, when we start to study ourselves and look closely at our experience, we see that it is so difficult. We spend so much of our lives in fear, distracted, numb, struggling, suffering. And so we take up this practice of Zen and we submit ourselves to enormous discipline, to multitudes of complex practices. We exert impossible amounts of energy and count a million breaths. We break through hundreds of koans. We sit through session after session to get a glimpse of it, to get a glimpse of our life. Ironically, we push and strive only to finally find that it is by relaxing completely and letting go of everything that we fall into our lives and gain the whole world. And when we are so merged with our lives, when we are our lives themselves, how can there be room for regret? There is now no one standing back and reflecting. There is no place but here. And even when we do stand back and reflect, there's a lightness to things. We don't take ourselves as seriously anymore, let alone have any regrets. Now, if this is not a life of no regrets, it is, is at least a moment of no regrets. But sooner or later, we have to get up off the cushion and we need to leave the monastery and go back into our regular lives. We have needs and desires that aren't being met. Something out there is calling to us, and so we go. And out there, we have to deal with all these other people. And as it turns out, they're constantly disappointing us. And society is putting a lot of pressure on us to be a certain way, to live a certain life. We want that approval. And we're getting older, so we should be having kids. Or should we travel the world? Or is it our, is it our career that we should prioritize right now? We want to be loved. We want to be a success. How does anyone navigate all of these, all of this, and make decisions? Surely we'll regret half of them. It seems impossible. And they call this lay practice. Welcome to lay practice, everyone. 
So I wanted to talk a bit about lay practice and its challenges because it is difficult. And although all the teachings and koans are addressing just this life, it's sometimes hard to see that. And living at the monastery too is very difficult. It's a very focused life and there are so many challenges. But lay practice is a different kind of difficult. Out in the real world, there's so many ways to cope with things and avoid looking at ourselves. You can get involved in all sorts of activities and life can seem quite fine. And it is fine. But after a while, things change and stop working. We get stuck. And then what? I spent the last year and a half in Bali. It was quite a blessed life there, a bit of a heaven realm most of the time. I was generally pretty happy and excited every time at the start of every day. And things were going okay, I thought. But as time went on, I noticed I was getting slowly more brittle. I would get irritated more easily when I would drive about in traffic on my motorbike. People would cut me off. There'd be people driving on the sidewalk or coming in my lane the wrong way. And at, at times it seemed I would look around and everyone was doing something wrong, except for me. And I noticed I would start getting irritated by the music in restaurants that I would go to. And I would have to start going to fewer and fewer. I was finding less joy in my friends who I was hanging around with. Some of them, I started to feel kind of annoying with them. I needed quieter and quieter hotels to sleep in. I couldn't understand how anyone could, else could sleep with all the dogs barking, the loud motorbikes, the roosters and nightclubs, and all the other sounds of Bali. And for some reason, my life was getting narrower and narrower, dependent on more and more of it going right in order for me to be happy. And I felt sometimes like I was walking a tightrope and one false move and I would, it would be disastrous. I started to have trouble sleeping. I was irritated by this hum in my room and I turned around in my bed so I wouldn't hear it as much. But then I found the air conditioner started making some strange cracking sounds. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I would lie there for hours just waiting for the next sound. And the next day I'd drag myself around all day, exhausted and miserable. And this went on for days and weeks. And I stopped enjoying my hobbies, my friends, going to the beach. Um, I became obsessed with ideas of how to make my room quieter. And none of them worked for very long. There was always something else to start making noise. And I started to lose confidence in myself. And I hatched escape plans, but then lost belief in them before I could execute them. In short, I was in a crisis in the middle of paradise. And so what do we do in a crisis when we find ourselves in our lives stuck in a crisis? What do we do when all the ways we use to cope with life stop working for some reason? Well, here we are in Sishin. So why don't we examine what happens when we hit a wall in our zazen? I'm sure we've all experienced that. We get to a place where our zazen just stops working. And we try applying all our meditation techniques 
everything we've read in the books, everything our teacher has told us, but nothing now seems to work, and we're just stuck, trapped, and suffering. So what can we do? Well, I know what I do. I start strategizing. I deny the situation completely. I look for some kind of way out. I go numb. I try to drown it all out with some kind of mental noise and basically just thrash about for a while. But of course, none of that works. And eventually exhausted, I'm just left with my barrier, my stuckness, my misery. And the sooner we get here, the sooner we can open up to what's actually happening. To help this process, the first thing I found that is essential is to just stop moving, keep completely still. Then relax your body. And then open your eyes and feel what you're feeling. And this is actually really hard for me. I find we'll only f do this once we've exhausted all other options. Finally, we need to accept what we're feeling, accept where we are and what we see. And at that point, we find the pain may start to ease up. It may go away, there may be a new pain, or our pain may get worse. But now it doesn't matter so much because we've stopped fighting. We've given up on our plan and we no longer are holding on to our pride. And in this way, we become larger and gain access to a deeper freedom than we had before. And whether or not our barrier is still there, it no longer controls us, no longer defines us. And so we learn how to let go. And session after session, we learn it over and over again. So if we apply this process that we see under a microscope in session, to our lives, to when we get stuck in our lives. We see that it works the same way there. So in my mini crisis with not sleeping, I eventually just lost, gave up on all my ideas and I just was stuck and I stopped moving around. And I had to then just let the sounds in and feel whatever was beneath, all the loneliness, the failure, the despair. And eventually I could feel my heart again. And whether I was exhausted the next day or well rested, I wasn't struggling as much anymore. And I surprisingly felt more connected to people, to the world, to nature. I stopped worrying so much about the future. Of course, this isn't a straight path. And for me, it's still very much a work in progress. Perhaps it's a bit like learning to ride a bike. One day you seem to do quite well and then the next day you can barely find your balance again. But I can see that this struggle is opening me up to something bigger. I have seen this process so many times in, in Zazen, in Seshin, and so I trust it and I'm willing to see it through. I should also mention that it can be useful in these situations <clears throat> to ask for help from a teacher, from a therapist, from a friends. It is often helpful, helpful to have a coach or a witness to avoid it being such a lonely path and keep ourselves grounded. And so we practice in session, 
in our lives at the monastery, our lives outside of the monastery, in near or distant lands. We practice alone, we practice with others. It's the same mind, the same struggle, the same freedom. And gradually we get better at this. We come to recognize more quickly when we're struggling and fighting with our lives. And we get better at stopping and seeing and feeling and letting go. Often when we encounter a problem in our lives, at first we often don't see it as being practicable or within the realm of Zen practice. And we have to get over that barrier first before we can actually take it up and start to practice it. But if we stay committed to this path, then that sphere of what we learn to take up in our practice gets larger and larger. So when things come to a crisis in our lives, it can be terrifying, disruptive, dangerous, but it can also be a gift because it can't be avoided. It's right there in front of you. It demands being attended to. What's more difficult is when this doesn't happen and we just go along day after day in a life of, say, quiet desperation. I find this is quite rare at the monastery. Things here seem designed to push one from a sort of mini-crisis to another mini-crisis and keep people moving forward. And if we do manage to find some kind of nest, we have teachers who will undoubtedly notice and will have ways of prodding us along. But in the outside world, it doesn't happen so efficiently, at least not for me. I find years go by with just living, surviving, coping. Our fears of aging and death never fully come to a boil. We develop distractions, addictions, obsessions, hobbies, chronic pains to keep our attention consumed. We travel around from country to country, person to person, job to job, so nothing catches us. We create chaos and drama. We take up a good cause that we can feel angry about, or we just keep ourselves super busy. Whatever, whatever our flavor, we secretly learn to cope and we stay hidden from ourselves. And yet we're not really happy. I remember for a while in Bali when I was traveling around to all these amazing iconic beaches and waterfalls, visiting cliffs and volcanoes, I would notice I found it difficult to really enjoy them. It was quite disturbing. I would just stand there on a beach watching the sunset, but I wouldn't be able to feel it with my heart. I'd just arrive, take a photo, then want to move on to the next place, always feeling a little bit unsettled and impatient. And it troubled me because these places were magnificent, like incredible. And I didn't know what to do about it. And um, it reminded me of this quote uh, by Georgia O'Keeffe. She says, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. It takes time. And we haven't time. So to interrupt this quiet desperation that silently invades our lives sometimes, and to keep ourselves moving along in lay practice, I found it's helpful to stay close to the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. When we can work with a teacher, when we're studying the Dharma, 
when we're surrounded by sangha, it's a lot harder to sustain this kind of numbness. It's harder to just languish in our practice. When I was in Bali, I started a sitting group. And there was actually quite a lot of people seeking things spiritually in Bali. But there was no Zen at all, no Buddhism. And so I started a group. And people would come to my place. We'd sit together once a week. And we started doing monthly Zazenkais. And I found that leading this group demanded from me more scrutiny of my own practice. I felt seen by these people, and I so wanted to show up for them. I wanted to give them the best I could. And so this was a reminder to me for how important Sangha is. And when we need to show up for each other, when we depend upon each other, then we also need to show up for ourselves. And here are various habits of avoidance that will often become visible to everyone else. And so they no longer work for us in the same way. And they're actually a problem. And so we need to find a way to let them go. Another aspect of running this sitting group for me was that it gave me an opportunity to give of myself. And for months, I was contemplating starting this group, but would often wonder if it would just be a burden and take up too much of my, my time and too much of an effort. Somehow, though, after realizing I was going to be stuck in Bali with the pandemic for another six months at least, um, everything just kind of clicked into place, and I, I just one day I just knew I had to do it. And I could immediately feel excited and energized, and like I was tapping into something bigger than myself. And I knew even if it failed, I wouldn't regret trying. I'd never started a sitting group like this from scratch. And as I conducted the first session, and I introduced people to Zazen, and I convinced them to sit still, I was surprised that I could do it. And I, I really could just be there for people, give of myself, and deal with the various challenges and, and situations that come up. And it reminded me of training here at the monastery, how we were all asked to do these various jobs and service positions. And I remember even just being usher or jikido at the beginning. It was At first, it was scary. And yet, everyone finds within themselves the capacity to rise up to it and to overcome our fear and to give ourselves to the task. And sooner or later, we find we gain a new confidence and can do it pretty easily. And each position seems designed to coax us through this process. I remember in the early years during Session, I was having a particularly rough time. I was struggling and I was kind of miserable. And at the time, I was Jihido. And I remember one morning, as I was starting to strike the Han after caretaking, I thought, even though I feel terrible, I can at least strike this Han for Zazen. I can at least do this for the Sangha. And that made me feel a bit better. Somehow, having that opportunity to give of myself in that moment just lightened things up a little bit for me. And all the various service positions can call this out of us, from being attendant to Jisha, to liturgist, to cook, to Shuso. Each one demands a little bit more from us. And it's amazing 
how we, they work to re reorient us. And each time we discover, we have a, a deeper capacity to give. Well, I felt the same thing each week running my sitting group. So much of the digital nomad lifestyle, digital nomad is what we call ourselves, these people that sort of travel around and work online and, and make money and scrape by or, or not or, or do fairly well or whatever. So much of that lifestyle is sort of geared towards um, satisfying our desires, um, having a good time, taking care of ourselves. But for that one day each week, when I'd run my group, I'd do something completely different. And whether eight people came or three people came, whether we had a flowing discussion about the Dharma or whether it was kind of a challenge, after each session, I would go up on my hotel roof and I'd watch the sunset. And I'd be filled with some kind of satisfaction uh, that I'd tried my best. And it was a day I wouldn't regret. And it would make me pause on the other days of the week. And I, was, I would wonder, as I'm just going about my regular life, I'd wonder where the feelings of fulfillment and largeness went. And why did I sometimes feel so full and whole, and other times so kind of poor and small? And how do I move myself and align my life so that I continue to become, feel more sort of larger and larger in this way? And I'm sure everyone here has their various ways, their various avenues they, they give in their lives, from relationships to work, to raising a family, to teaching, to making art. But I think it's useful to recognize this and decide if this is what we want. And I know at times I prefer to stay small, to stay hidden under a rock. But I also know that living like that can soon feel quite wretched, and I would regret it. So I have to keep reminding myself to step out, to take a risk, to give. Shortly before I left Bali, one of my good friends, who is also attending my group, said to me, as much as I'm impressed by the way you run our group, I'm equally unimpressed by the way you live your life. <laughs> and, uh, and this knocked me off my chair. Um, I wasn't sure how much of she was just teasing me or what, but there is also certainly some truth in what she was saying. Um, she is actually a therapist and she knows me quite well. And, um, and I, so I thought about this um, for a while and I asked her about it on subsequent occasions to elaborate and things like that. I think it points to that lay life is difficult. It's difficult in very overt ways, in, in these times of crisis where we get stuck and it's just so obvious and we can't move. And it's also difficult in these silent ways, the ways that we can't see that we're stuck, but we're stuck nonetheless and we're struggling and suffering. And I do have regrets and I suffer. And that's why we keep coming back to this practice of no regrets. We long for it. Our job is to discover all the ways we suffer, to bring them out into full view, and to find a way to let them go.
By doing this, we come alive. And our, our sense of who we become, our sense of who we are becomes larger, lighter, and less solid. We learn to become more present, more intimate with our lives. And slowly we find, find ourselves, as Mizumi Roshi's book is titled, we find ourselves appreciating our, appreciating our lives in broader and deeper ways. I like this quote uh, from Viking's Wake by Richard John. I haven't actually read the book. Someone sent this to me. I'm going to read it anyway. What if the spell of a place falls upon a youthful heart and the bright horizons call? Many a thing will keep till the world's work is done and youth is only a memory. When the old enchanter came to my door, laden with dreams, I reached out with both hands. For I knew that he would not be lured with gold that I might later offer when age had come upon me. So it says, when the old enchanter came to my door, laden with dreams, I reached out with both hands. And whatever that means to each of us, the time to do that is now. We must not wait until the world's work is done and youth is only a memory. So here we are in Sashin. Next week, we'll be back in our regular lives, whether here at the monastery or out in the larger world. Wherever we find ourselves, we must tune into this longing for practice, this longing for living a life of no regrets. And if we stay awake to that, then it will be like an anchor, like a compass to keep us from going astray. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org.